0: to the Air War Project, Episode 2, American Interwar Air Power Theory, The Rise of Strategic Bombardment. This is Tommy Jack, with Scott Horne pulling the levers in the control room. In this episode, we will cover the development of American air power during the crucial interwar period to trace how it evolved from a fledgling air service struggling to survive in the lean defense budgets of the 1920s to the nearly independent Air Force that fought during World War II and gained full independence shortly thereafter. The interwar period is extraordinarily important to understanding U.S. Air Force thinking on air power, not only during the aerial campaigns of World War II, but throughout the Cold War, Vietnam, the Gulf Wars, and beyond. The theories, norms, and doctrine developed during the formative interwar years continue to exert a powerful influence on Air Force thinking to the present day. This episode of Air War Project will trace the development of American interwar air power theory to show how peculiarities in geography, political outlook, and economic reality ultimately conspired to produce a uniquely American and quite innovative if not entirely satisfactory theory of air power, that of targeting industry and infrastructure, not fielded armies, or killing machines, not people. So with that introduction, let's now turn to the subject at hand, the remarkable 20-year period which proved so formative in the creation of the present-day U.S. Air Force. The year is 1918 and a small coterie of visionary airmen is making plans to employ large scale air power against German cities as part of a concerted effort to end the stalemate of World War I. Planning and preparations are well underway when the armistice is signed on november eleventh, nineteen eighteen, dashing their hopes to prove what had only been speculation to that point, that air power can win wars independently of ground forces, and moreover, do so efficiently and with a minimal loss of life. And so, with so much riding on the future of the airplane, it would be fair to say that for some the First World War ended too early. Air power was in the ascendancy, having grown technologically and doctrinally by leaps and bounds since 1914. And if the bomber would always get through, as contemporary wisdom suggested, then growth in the effectiveness of the bomber force, air power supporters argued, would have brought Germany to its knees and concluded the war. There were reasons to believe a paradigmic shift was in the offing. The massive Handley-Page V-1500s of Hugh Trenchard's inter-allied independent force, capable of lifting up to 7,500 pounds of bombs to a radius of nearly 1,000 kilometers, had at last reached the Western Front, imminently to be used against Berlin. William Billy Mitchell and the U.S. Army Air Service, which, like its British counterpart, had been hampered by a dearth of suitable airplanes were undertaking similar preparations. But time ran out for the airmen before their revolutionary plans could take flight. Left in an interwar purgatory, convinced of their right to an independent air force, but unable to prove it in action, America's air power advocates would have their revolutionary claims tested not on the battlegrounds of Europe, but in the halls of power and courts of public opinion. And because the requirements for success in these arenas were decidedly different than in war, American air power theory developed along lines that were not necessarily empirically, practically, or logically based. And as the airmen dug in for their long struggle for independence, their theory on the strategic employment of air power became fused and confused with their political argument for an independent Air Force. Thus the theory of strategic bombardment provided not only a practical guide to wage war and organize an Air Force but also the crucial political underpinning of the battle to establish an autonomous United States Air Force. This interwar contest proved to be more than just a clash of theory between airmen and the military establishment writ large. It was a battle for the organizational control, the economic foundations, and the general organization of American air power. To achieve their goals of institutional independence, Mitchell and his successors at the Air Corps Tactical School were forced into increasingly dubious and untenable air power claims, the implications of which would not be felt until World War II when they were tested in battle. But even before those wars could be waged, the most pressing and immediate problem for airmen returning from World War I was the continued survival of their air service against the sweeping defense budget cuts to America's armed services. This was no trivial matter. The established services, the Army and the Navy, would surely suffer under reduced budgets, but their continued existence, interwar peace movements like Kellogg-Briand notwithstanding, was never in question but the survival of the fledgling air service into the post-war years, faced with an army institutional culture reluctant to conceptualize air power as anything more than an auxiliary unit of the ground forces, and a political culture unable to accept some of the more radical ideas put forth by air power advocates, remained very much in doubt and of great concern to air service leadership. Conventional army wisdom following the war accepted the airplane as useful for artillery spotting reconnaissance and ground support but not much more and the air power advocates vocal and obstinate refusal to accept such constricting views of their flying machines only served to polarize army leadership in its position to sidestep the deadlock billy mitchell and his acolytes appealed directly to the american public and congress which remained largely enamored with the airplane even if they were unwilling to provide the resources necessary to build a peacetime strategic air force or to unconditionally accept the total war principles inherent in strategic bombardment. In fact, airmen steadfastly maintained that the airplane was inherently strategic and primarily an offensive weapon. It might be beneficial at this point to define the term strategic as it was being used at the time. In the context of air power, Strategic meant a means of direct attack on the enemy state with the object of depriving it of the means or the will to continue a war. In practice, strategic meant city or morale bombing, or rather the ability, its supporters claimed, to rapidly coerce or destroy a nation from inside out rather than laboriously fighting its armies from the hard outer shell in. Such a conception of war carried significant philosophical implications that appeared to turn thinking about warfare on its head. Whereas for millennia, the centers of gravity comprised enemy fielded forces, whether deployed at land or at sea, the ability to bypass those same forces with aircraft and reach directly at the soft civilian populace suggested a revolution in warfare. But the concept of strategic bombing, codified in a sort of early theory, starts with the Italian air power prophet Giulio Duhay. Duhay, who wrote primarily for his Italian audience but whose writings influenced all subsequent theorists, single-mindedly advocated for the strategic employment of aircraft against enemy population centers. His vision necessitated the construction of a fleet of large strategic multi-engine bombers or battle planes as he called them necessary for the prosecution of large-scale attack against enemy cities. Duhay advocated for air power prolifically, and the sum of his ideas was assembled in his best-known work, The Command of the Air. As a conceptual statement exploring the revolutionary future of aerial warfare, the book was a brilliant thrust forward for air power. But as a practical tool for the aspiring air commander, it was a best-done essay on aerial tactics containing a number of unsubstantiated assumptions and a succession of misguided conclusions. The command of the air ranged across topics, firing generalized broadsides such as wherever two men meet, conflict is inevitable, while simultaneously proclaiming a technologically deterministic view of the effectiveness of strategic bombardment. Of the new multi-engine bombers then being designed, Duhay claimed that twenty would suffice to break up the whole social structure of the enemy in less than a week, no matter what his army and navy may do. The breaking of morale in Duhay's vision was as simple as that. No wonder a recent description described them as so often wrong, yet so often invoked. In hindsight, it is easy to look back with a chuckle at some of the comically overblown statements contained within the book, but we must also remember that Duhay, and all advocates in fact that came after him, were looking to establish independent air forces And were in effect more committed to their vision of warfare than the truth in an abstract sense. They were salesmen who omitted any information that might have proven detrimental to their cause. And so Duhay's theories, like many later Air Corps Tactical School theories, were made as if in a vacuum, assuming ideal laboratory-like combat conditions, because that suited their case but also because it was not inconceivable that the bomber really did represent a revolutionary change in warfare. In Duhay's theoretical world, the bombers always got through, crew equipment always worked, bombs never missed or failed to explode, and bombing patterns never overlapped. Moreover, Duhay's calculations about bomb effectiveness, and consequently the tonnage required to destroy a target, were wildly optimistic. When tried over the skies of Europe in World War II, his predictions were shown to be completely false. But by that point, it really didn't matter. The air power advocates had won their case, and airplanes were to be found everywhere, fighting in all theaters of conflict. Duhay presented little evidence for his assertions or practical instructions as to how his ideas were to be implemented. He seemed to have completely overlooked the rules of friction and fog in war. So it is not surprising that the command of the air, in its depth, hardly bears comparison to the works of Kloswitz or Jomini. But as a seminal work that fired the first real shot of air power advocacy, it remains unparalleled for its forcefulness and thought of vision. Clearly, the path later to be treaded by Mitchell and the Air Corps Tactical School, Duhay justified the practices of total war as an antidote to the waste, inefficiency, and carnage of trench warfare. Relative to the trenches, Duhaytian bombing appeared easy, cheap to develop, efficient to practice, and impervious to defenses. Of course it wasn't, but Duhay did get it right on many broad assumptions. He was an early supporter of independent air forces commanded by airmen, and predicated his strategic bombing campaigns on first achieving air superiority or Command of the Air as he called it, a hard lesson learned by the Air Corps over the skies of Europe. Moreover, do minded airmen could legitimately claim a number of successes, beginning in World War I and running through the interwar years. Marshal Hugh Trenchard, an early proponent of bombing, oversaw the establishment of the strategic-oriented Independent Air Force in 1918 as part of the Royal Flying Corps that carried out attacks against German infrastructure as part of a nascent strategic bombing campaign. Later, Trenchard would head up the intra-allied independent air force comprising British, French, American and Italian squadrons that, had the war continued, would have launched a concerted bombing campaign against German industrial and population centers. So while most allied air forces contain few, if any, purpose-built bomber aircraft, the Royal Flying Corps could claim a burgeoning bomber fleet. In fact, one in five of its aircraft were bombers, and that ratio was increasing as the war concluded. Of course, there were specific national and cultural reasons for Britain's particular receptivity to strategic conceptions of air power. Britain's historical preference for naval power and avoidance of the costly land battle and its attendant large standing armies made the strategic potential of the bomber seem like a logical extension of its reliance on naval power but that truly is a topic for a future episode early american airplanes for world war I, prepared by colonel edgar gorel likewise evidenced a duhetian touch if only indirectly gorel had met in 1917 with count gianni camproni a close associate of Duhay and fellow traveler and discuss strategic bombing ideas with him as well as some of the caproni bomber aircraft available for procurement the Gurel plan that resulted targeted several classes of critical components of germany's ability to wage war to include industry and infrastructure german armies and to a much lesser extent than Duhay would have preferred the people themselves as part of an overall morale campaign of course the plan stood little chance of political approbation in Washington, even if the Air Service had the appropriate aircraft to carry it out, which it did not, but it did represent one of the earliest officially sanctioned statements on the employment of strategic air power by the U.S. Air Force. Of course, prior to the war, popular predictions of the effectiveness of strategic bombing far exceeded its technical reality or even the willingness of governments to undertake such wide-scale civilian targeting. Nevertheless, wild predictions about city bombing had prepared some for mass panic. Winston Churchill, in the summer of 1918 and serving as Minister of Munitions, projected that should London come under systematic bombing attack, upwards of four million Londoners might flee the city and seek shelter in the country. Post-war examination of bombing damage challenged such notions. Hugh Trenchard's independent force, for example, delivered 543 tons of bombs on German targets, yet suffered 352 aircraft loss in the process. Moreover, only large and readily identifiable targets such as Zeppelin hangars could reasonably be hit, and even then with only a 25% probability of success. Targeting more discrete objectives, such as railway junctions, resulted in hits a minuscule 2% of the time. A continuing inability to hit targets accurately, combined with limited bomb loads, remained a significant impediment to bombing effectiveness and to the mass panics anticipated by the public and the aviation profits themselves. Post-war bombing surveys revealed other unexpected results. Survey teams found the actual physical blast effects produced by bombing to have been less than anticipated. This was strong evidence against the calculations presented by Duhay and others as part of their air power theories. But foretelling an overemphasis on the abstract aspect of morale that would underpin the fully mature theory of strategic bombardment, the teams turned to the commensurate psychological effects that the destruction surely would have brought on. The survey teams made tenuous claims about declining factory worker morale that would have likely collapsed German industrial production if only the air campaign had continued for just a few months longer. Surveys often extrapolated and speculated on what would have happened had bombing continued and ignored evidence to the contrary. That increased pay for workers, for example, readily convinced them to stay on the job or that the collegial atmosphere that often accompanied time spent in air raid shelters actually resulted in increases, not decreases in morale. Exaggeration of the psychological effect, of course, was nothing new. Trenchard's oft-repeated and totally unsubstantiated claim that the psychological or the morale effects of bombing in relation to the material effects were in the ratio of 20 to 1 comes to mind. Theoretical debates about the effectiveness of bombing notwithstanding, America's post war retreat into isolationism stymied the wartime dynamism of air power development, and in the absence of proof of the effectiveness of strategic bombing, reinforced the status quo of aircraft serving as supporting elements to ground operations. Air power advocates thus faced not only the inevitable post war demilitarization the aircraft industry shrank to one-tenth its wartime size within a year of the war's ending and the 200,000 strong air service to less than 10,000 personnel, but also reductions in budgets for research and development and procurement of new designs. There were other more fundamental problems. After the armistice and despite the assertions of some airmen to the contrary, the U.S. Army Air Service, in fact, not only lacked a coherent working set of propositions on the proper use of military aviation, but also a coherent theory, strategy, and doctrine upon which airmen could base the future development of their Air Force. The fictional tales of H.G. Wells made for compelling reading, but they were not doctrine, nor could they even offer so much as a practical guide to the organization and employment of air power. Not surprisingly, then, Mitchell's hopes of autonomy for air power were dashed with the Army Reorganization Act of 1920, which gave the Air Service statutory legitimacy, but from a practical perspective confirmed Army Chief of Staff General John Pershing's assertion that an Air Force acting independently can of its own account neither win a war at the present time, nor so far as we can tell at any time in the future. Such statements seemed to confirm to airmen that the institutional momentum was arrayed against them, and independence would not be received as a gift from above, but rather hard won. The air service order of battle clearly reflected conventional wisdom as outlined by Pershing. For every ninth aircraft in its inventory, one was a bomber. Mitchell and his band of airmen undertook a deliberate multi-pronged campaign to convince the American public that it was foremost an air power nation, not a maritime nation, and that the Air Corps had a useful role to play in peacetime operations, and therefore ought not to be disbanded, and also that an Air Force was most effective when it was organized independently as an autonomous service. As for the Air Service itself, Mitchell tasked it with creating a doctrine of air power employment that best made use of the above presuppositions. By the early 1920s, Mitchell had emerged as Air Power's star advocate and primary counterweight to Pershing and the Army leadership, a position that he was able to advance thanks to his role as Assistant Chief of Air Services from 1920 to 1925. Although Mitchell initially abided by War Department rules in petitioning for more independence, He soon came to believe that change in military systems came about only through the pressure of public opinion or catastrophe in war. He embarked on spectacular bombing demonstrations, engaged in grandiose public pronouncements, and openly clashed with his civilian and military overseers. He and other airmen testified before congressional committees on the utility of air power dozens of times and sat on numerous army or defense department general boards to study and advise on the best use of air power. Mitchell capitalized on America's public anti-war sentiment to highlight the effectiveness of air power in reducing the losses inherent in trench warfare. His success at the Battle of St. Michael, the biggest air offensive of the war, gave him credibility and associated his persona with the success of the sort of decisive victory he proposed through strategic air power. Mitchell kept air power on the front pages by staging well-publicized aerial feats and events. Cross-continent formation flights, altitude, speed, and endurance flights, and even later General Hap Arnold's well-publicized race against pigeons of 1921 grabbed the public's attention and kept aviation on the front pages. All of it with the intent of convincing and imbuing the populace with an air-mindedness that would pay off in future decisions about the Air Corps. Aerial competitions such as the Bendix Trophy, Schneider Cup, Pulitzer Trophy, Thompson Trophy pushed aviation progress forward at a time when the Army neither had the will nor the resources to do so. Starting in 1920, the national air races attracted crowds of 100,000 spectators or more, and spurred on the private development of engines and airframes that in the long run will greatly benefit military aviation. Owing to America's vast geography and helped along by Mitchell's agenda for a strategic oriented air force, long range and endurance record flights dominated. Such flights required reliable multi-engined aircraft designs equipped with excellent navigation equipment and capable of flight in day and night and in all weather conditions innovations such as in-flight refueling a technique that would become crucial to air power projection in the 1950s were first tried under mitchell's tutelage in 1929 future chief of the air force and bomber advocate general carl spatz set an endurance record of over 150 hours in the air in the famous question mark aircraft by way of aerial refueling concurrently the explosive growth of the airline industry fed off and fed the continued expansion of high altitude and long-range flight, night navigation, and poor weather flying. But the Air Corps wasn't just about stunts and aerial feats. Air Corps pilots showed the usefulness of their machines by undertaking aerial forest fire spotting, border patrols along the Mexican border, aerial disaster relief, and emergency postal delivery service. While the work on America's air-mindedness continued apace, Mitchell set to codifying his ideas about air power into hard doctrine for the air service to build itself around. At its theoretical core, what was Mitchell proposing? Well, Mitchell had worked with Trenchard during World War I and corresponded with Duhay, and was deeply affected by their thoughts. He hoped to achieve for America what Trenchard had achieved for Britain, an air force that in its strategy, equipment, and training was thoroughly imbued with the doctrine of strategic bombardment indeed even more so than duhay's own Italian air force he maintained like duhay that destruction of national war-making potential what he called the manufactories the means of communications the food products even the farms the fuel and oil and the places where people live and carry on their lives were the true objects of air operations how was this to be done well mitchell proposed that aircraft operating in the heart of an enemy's country would accomplish the collapse of civilian and political will to resist in an incredibly short space of time and the months and even years of contests of ground armies with a loss of millions of lives will be eliminated in the future this idea of an independent air force undertaking its own operations hinged on the acceptance of the total war concept but in those early days The political will to conceptualize that the way to defeat an armed force was to destroy its fuel supply and infrastructure beyond the front line, or its political will to fight through morale bombing, simply was not there. The flimsy nature of early aircraft and their mixed record during World War I provided strong ammunition for those who were inclined to doubt the entire idea. Although total war, the involvement of all society in the war effort, had been a fact since at least the American Civil War. The concept that military power be applied against civilian targets as a primary objective of war, and not as its consequence, seemed too much a barrier for the war-weary public and politicians to accept. To carve out a politically acceptable niche and secure vital funding for the air service, Mitchell instead proposed that air power might make a cost-effective defense against naval attack, rapidly developing this idea into his mantra. That this put him in conflict with the Navy, which had traditionally assumed coastal defense and power projection responsibilities, was all the better, for it was the public and political decisiveness of the showdown that Mitchell hankered after. He was, of course, playing with fire. The Navy stood as a bulwark against an independent air service, as much as, and even more so than the Army. Navy leaders were convinced that an independent air arm would side with the army in budget battles and leave the Navy not only with a decreasing portfolio of missions, but decreasing budget appropriations too. That Mitchell's ideas challenged nothing less than the sacrosanct legacy of the patron saint of American navalism, Alfred Thayer Mahan, fired up the admirals even more. Navies had, after all, served as the primary instrument of blockade and power projection for centuries. But air power offered a far more direct method of bringing the war to the enemy, and more rapidly and conclusively to boot. Fleets were confined to the oceans, and any effect they could exert on the land battle was likely to be indirect and slow. But for air power, terms such as the knockout blow from the air, bolt from the blue, and terror bombing were verbal amorphisms to be sure, but they played on the decisiveness and finality of aircraft undertaking operations against targets. To this end, Mitchell publicly maintained the aircraft's superiority over the battleship, the necessity of an air force over a navy as a first line of defense, and most importantly, the reorganization of the armed services to reflect this reality. Mitchell mobilized his considerable political relations to assist him in the fight. He was a savvy organizer with a good feel for publicity and was privy to the political maneuverings of the Navy on occasion receiving insider information. When Acting Secretary of the Navy Theodore Roosevelt Jr., the son of the former President, briefed members of Congress on his position that the Navy was the superior instrument of war, Senator Roy Fitzgerald promptly informed Mitchell of the proceedings. He went so far as to suggest a course of counteraction to show how helpless the great ships were from the air. Mitchell's keen sense of publicity made him realize that running tests against battleships would attract great interest. The Navy, as a last resort and to stave off mounting criticism of its views on air power, Transferred its own aviation program to a full fledged Navy Bureau of Aeronautics in 1921 for fear that the Air Corps would assume its air power role. But even that was not enough, and Mitchell continued to score hits in the public forum. Yet the idea of airplane against battleship continued to grow and finally bore fruit that year in a series of bombing tests against several decommissioned ships, culminating in the sinking of the Ostreif's Land. A former German battleship, the land was a crumbling warship with most of her watertight fittings damaged, with no crew to stem the flooding and moored in place. It was hit by 22 of 86 bombs dropped over two days. Not a confidence-inspiring record of precision, and Mitchell had broken a number of rules set out by the Navy to do it, including the employment of 2,000-pound bombs. But the land and other ships in the test sank nonetheless and push forward Mitchell's agenda. Despite the protestations of the Navy, the press of the day lauded both Mitchell and the test as proof of the obsolescence of the battleship. The official Army-Navy report issued a month later was far more circumspect, stating unequivocally that the battleship remained the backbone of the Navy. But Mitchell issued his own countervailing report and leaked it to the press. Mitchell used the bombing tests not only to embarrass the Navy, but to hint at the effectiveness of his other ideas about bombardment. Having thrown into the bombing mix what he claimed were very small tear gas bombs of half strength, he then related anecdotes of the effects on Navy officers involved in the tests. The officers who had boarded the ships hours after the attack to inspect the damage were forced immediately to don gas masks, becoming disoriented in the process. Exhibiting his flair for hyperbole, Mitchell claimed that many hours later, the gas exuding from their clothing caused the girls waiting on tables at dinner to begin to cry. Such stories infuriated the Navy, but played very well with the public. While Mitchell versus the Navy became the stuff of legend, it was not at all clear that the tests represented an accurate depiction of the supremacy of air versus sea power. Roosevelt, Jr. summed up the tests aptly. I once saw a man kill a lion with a .30-30 caliber rifle under certain conditions. But that doesn't mean that a .30-30 rifle is a lion gun. The tests did show that a prepared attack against immobile ships, such as ones at harbor, for example, a foreshadowing of Taranto and Pearl Harbor, could be very effective. Against modern, manned, maneuvering and defending ships in the open sea, such as the escape of the Scharnhorst and the Gneisenau through the English Channel in 1942, air power was clearly nearing its limits. The Navy steadfastly stood by its battleships, maintaining that the threat from the air and the submarine, coincidentally, could be overcome by technological and tactical evolution. To support its claim, it pointed out that the battleship could throw more lead into the air than could contemporary aircraft and, through the rapidity of hitting, as they called it, deliver more hits on target than any potential aerial armada then allowed under the Washington Conference. The Navy, like the Army, was slow to recognize the revolutionary potential of the airplane. As had the Army in 1918, the Navy saw airplanes as extensions of its naval guns and the naval airplane as a new sort of projectile carried by surface ship. In other words, the one-word air power advocate shudder to hear, flying artillery. The Navy reluctantly began procurement of aircraft carriers not for use against land targets or battleships, but against the enemy's aircraft carriers and to protect its own battleships and increase the accuracy of their fire. Mitchell sensed the Navy's unease over naval aviation and seized the opportunity to finish it off. Describing the utility of the aircraft carrier, he asserted with dizzying logic that airplane carrying vessels are of no use against hostile air forces with bases on shore, and as they can only be of use against other vessels or hostile fleets that are on the surface of the water, and as these fleets will be supplanted by submarines, there is little use for the retention of airplane carriers. As to why airplane-carrying vessels were of no use against hostile air forces, Mitchell provided few details. One can only speculate that since the airplane carrier did not carry duhatian type strategic bombers, it could not as a consequence be of any strategic use. The irony of the B-25 Mitchell bombers launching off the USS Hornet aircraft carrier following the attack on Pearl Harbor would not have been lost on Mitchell himself if he had lived to see the day. Mitchell's increasingly virulent attacks against the Navy, aimed as they always had been at eliminating the threat to his independent air arm, finally forced a court-martial. But the Firebrand Advocate could at least console himself knowing that his actions had led to the establishment in 1926 by decision of the Morrow Board of the yet more autonomous Air Corps, the nomination of an Assistant Secretary of War for Air Matters and a renewed expansion of America's air power fleet nevertheless the moral board continued to reinforce the air power status quo by concluding that air power has not yet demonstrated its value for independent operations although he was forced out of the army and soon after out of the spotlight the role he had played in sustaining and expanding air power and theory and shaping subsequent generations of flyers had been critical at the root of the sort of civilian morale bombing proposed by Mitchell lay the understanding that mass industrialization had not only made workers legitimate total war targets but that industrialization and urbanization had exacerbated class tensions and isolated the alienated to use a Marxist terminology workers in factories how could these undisciplined masses behave under the effects of bombardment Would they revolt against the government and seek communist revolution as a response to their already uncomfortable lives trenchard and duhay were inclined to believe so others were less convinced and this leads us to the air corps tactical school that increasingly led the way in air power advocacy after mitchell's court-martial opened in 1920 at langley field and from 1931 operating from maxwell field alabama the Air Corps Tactical School's declared mission was to teach air officers the techniques of air power, the tactics. Its undeclared and more radical role was to create air power doctrine for the fledgling air element. In its early existence the school drew heavily on the experience of World War I, the teachings of Mitchell, and emerging developments in aviation technology. The immediate post-war years saw a return to the status quo, The Army Air Service remained just that, an auxiliary of the Army and tied to Army support operations. The US returned to isolationism, with a defensive policy to match, and a belief most forcefully put forth by Secretary of War Newton Baker that strategic bombing was immoral. Not surprisingly then, the school's early teachings remained within the orthodoxy of Army support aviation, and were firmly deferential to Army authority as late as 1928 commandant culver presented the view that the air component always supports the ground forces no matter how decisive its operations may be or how indirect its support this view was rapidly losing favor in a forceful response chief of the air corps major general Fochet countered the objective of war is to overcome the enemy's will to resist and the defeat of his army, his fleet, or the occupation of his territory is merely a means to this end, and none of them is the true objective. It is clear that the debate over the role and significance of air power would first have to be decided within the service itself before it could be argued before the War Department. From 1926 on, the Air Corps Act loosened some doctrinal shackles, and the Air Corps Tactical School curriculum gained independence, increasingly exploring a strategic role for air power. The school's move to Maxwell, a discreet and quiet location away from the influence of senior army and political leadership, proved fortuitous for the development of more radical thinking. Indicative of its increasingly revolutionary thoughts, the motto, we make progress unhindered by custom, served as the guiding principle of students and instructors. Tactical school courses such as Employment of Combined Air Force began to use texts which envisioned aviation as co-equal with ground and naval forces and spoke of attacking material and morale targets. After 1932, the Tactical School staked its reputation on strategic air power and in doing so created the theory and doctrine that underpinned World War II aerial strategy. Having learned the lessons of the Mitchell Affair, The school relied on logic, not bluster, while at the same time appealing to the common and fiscal sense of the political and military leadership. Sensing that the interwar period, characterized by tight defense budgets, a pacifist public sentiment and an isolationist stance, made maximization of scarce defense dollars prudent, the Air Corps systematically appealed to the cost effectiveness of air power vis-à-vis the other services it subtly created the foundations of a logical case for pushing air corps prerogatives beyond the strictly defensive taskings of air defense and coastal defense to the attack upon enemy lines of communication and vital centers suggesting the latter two were in fact defensive operations was a stretch as was the implication that it was an air corps mission and not a navy mission the navy for its part resisted this further intrusion on its roles But by then, it was becoming clear that the Air Corps vision was gaining wider and wider acceptance among the political class in Washington. The General Headquarters Air Force was established in 1935 and was a significant step on the road towards autonomy. The GHQ relied on Air Corps Tactical School doctrine. To formulate the primary tasks of the air corps which by 1935 had been established within the tight circle of airmen as first and foremost operations beyond the reach of friendly ground forces the support of ground forces defense of the rear and even the defense of the seacoast remained important but clearly secondary tasks from the tactical school's perspective if not officially from the perspective of their army overseers But the point was that by the mid-1930s, the bomber barons of Maxwell had won the often quite fierce internal disputes to establish an organizational guiding vision for the Air Corps, pushing out all other considerations to include the development of pursuit or fighter aviation. One victim of this fratricidal turmoil was Claire Lee Cheneau, later made famous by his leadership of the Flying Tigers, who bitterly resigned in 1937 over disputes with the barons, who by then held almost all senior leadership positions. With little now standing in its way, the school marked a spiritual return to the bombing proposals of World War I, notably elements of the Gorel Plan, but its approach was far more pragmatic this time around. For one, tactical school instructors accepted that fiscal and political realities were hardly going to support a duhatian sized fleet of long-range bombers. Air Corps instructors, therefore, worked within that reality to create the sort of practical or realistic theory of air power employment that Mitchell, in all his bombast, could never have limited himself to. They reasoned that if certain crucial elements of enemy industry could be identified through rigorous and systematic study, then the destruction of those elements through precision bombing would collapse, like a house of cards, the war-making potential of an enemy. This selective targeting of key nodes became Air Corps Tactical School Mantra during the 1930s. In common with the classical air power theorists, the school reasoned that the breakdown of civilian morale was the true objective of war. Civilians would, under the stress of constant bombardment, force change in national policy through the exertion of political pressure on their leaders. This was all the more likely because modern industrialized nations had become symbiotically dependent on highly specialized and interdependent systems, an industrial web as the school called it. The question remained, however, as to which targets were so crucial that their destruction could produce an almost immediate collapse of the enemy will to fight. Duhay had not been clear on this and it did not take much foresight to realize that dissimilar societies in dissimilar times might have different pressure points. But the Air Corps Tactical School believed that by way of rigorous and scientific study of enemy economic systems, these specific critical points of the industrial web could be identified. At the same time, however, the school made a conscious and deliberate decision to part ways with the Trenchardian or Duhatian notion of indiscriminate area bombing. A number of factors contributed to this fundamental divergence from classical air power theory, some of them already discussed. First, the MacArthur Pratt Agreement a divided army and Navy aviation amongst the two services, formally given the Air Corps what Mitchell had hankered after the coastal defense role long held by the navy as their sacred responsibility coastal defense required aircraft with long range effective navigation and a targeting system for accurate weapons delivery not coincidentally the same requirements of a long-range bomber aircraft with the assumption of coastal defense by the air corps these capabilities became almost overnight more than just wistful thinking of tactical school instructors struggling to square their theory of precision bombardment with the lackluster aircraft available to them they were now formal requirements with high-level approbation and formal funding and as the equipment used for coastal defense whether the aircraft itself or the navigation and targeting systems could readily be adapted for strategic bombing No longer, the school reasoned, would indiscriminate bombing be dictated by technological shortfalls. This is key because the ability to find and hit a moving ship out at sea forced technological progress in a direction eminently more suited to precision than area bombing. In effect, the Air Corps had succeeded in securing a backdoor way of funding the strategic bomber force needed to enact their precision bombardment doctrine. But assumption of coastal defense effectively impacted the development of naval aviation as well. Because if naval aircraft were no longer required for the defense of the United States from sea attack, what strategic use were there for them, other than meeting the tactical needs of the naval fleet itself as it carried out forward deployments? That mission seemed to carry none of the immediacy or prestige of the defense of the homeland. The Navy didn't accept such a view, but it was clear that it was losing more and more ground to the Air Corps with each new political skirmish. Meanwhile, the Air Corps Tactical School continued to make the case for expanding its coastal defensive mission, first out to 600 miles from the coastline, and later, as the capabilities of the B-17 took shape on the drawing boards, out to 1,500 miles, a distance which truly exasperated Navy senior staff. When the B-17 was ready, the Air Corps dramatically added insult to injury by staging a well-publicized intercept of the ocean liner Rex then sailing 700 miles east of New York. The three aircraft formation was led by Chief Navigator Curtis LeMay, who would go on to head the Strategic Air Command during the Cold War and became arguably the most famous of all the bomber barons. Second. A critical mass of like-minded instructors formed at the school at about the right time. Airmen such as Kenneth Walker, Donald Wilson, Lawrence Cooter, and Haywood Hansel believed in applying scientific reason to bombing calculations to refine them and endow them with an objective merit. Political and economic events of the time, the Great Depression being most notable among them, reinforced their ideas on the interdependence of the economy and politics to national integrity they endeavored to apply economic principles to the selection of key industries that could achieve victory without the sort of distasteful bloodshed on show in World War I and the other total war campaigns. In hindsight, it should not have been surprising that the country so tied to a liberal free market economy produced a largely economic theory of bombardment. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, the strength of their convictions was further reinforced by a belief in what American air power popularizer Alexander the called the fallacy of killing people although the Hague conference had failed to ratify its proposals on aerial warfare thereby strictly speaking making city bombing not illegal the Air Corps recoiled from bombing what they described as defenseless women and children and added that America doesn't wage war that way historian Richard Hallian has suggested that it is tempting to view the interwar quest for precision, in part at least, as a particularly American one, motivated by New World desires to n- minimize the sort of dreary excesses of the old world style of warfare. And so the emphasis on economic targeting to exert political pressure became a uniquely American way of war. Thus the instructors came to believe that their conceptualization of air power focused on destroying machines and infrastructure, not people, and that was the American way, that their theory had an inherent and fundamental truth to it. Earnest planning for this economic type of warfare began in the early 1930s. Possessing little economic intelligence about potential enemies, Donald Wilson, an instructor at the Air Corps Tactical School, diligently worked on developing the Key Nodes idea using the United States as a template. Under the guise of defensive planning, because in 1933 offensive targeting was not part of the official defense policy, he gleaned as much as he could on the suitability of various industrial targets. As a result, Tactical school instructors devised a targeting system favoring strikes against the electrical power grid. Its destruction, it was reasoned, would have an immediate effect on the national, social and economic spheres. And the electrical grid offered other advantages. Distribution stations were readily visible from the air and vulnerable to attack. Its generators and transformers were considered difficult to replace and destroying it produced effects far greater than the resources expended. The school's optimistic calculations assumed that a mere 100 bombs would be sufficient to destroy three quarters of the United States' northeastern electrical generating capacity. So while the school rejected Duhatian terror bombing, it clearly could not free itself from the completely unrealistic expectations of bombardment's effectiveness. Such schemes relied on new aircraft technology, then under development. The school's view on the employment of air power culminated and revolved around the capabilities of the B-17, equipped with the new Norden precision bombsite. The B-17 bomber not only had the range, the payload, the onboard defenses, but the accuracy to make daylight precision bombing a reality. It's Norden bombsite, bragged Air Corps officers, allowed it to drop a bomb into a pickle barrel from 25,000 feet. No one, of course, took such claims literally, but it did signify the confidence its designers and the Air Corps had in its accuracy, and by extension, in their desire to achieve precision. Despite the outward thoroughness of the school's ideas, practical planning and implementation flaws persisted. Specifics regarding funding, training and technology were left largely unaddressed in Air Corps tactical school plans. Where would the funding for a large fleet of B-17s come from? How would the Air Corps absorb and train personnel in the technologies implicit in this thinking? Certain tactical problems remained unresolved as well. How would the bombers get through to the target unescorted? After all, as recently as 1930, Air Corps tactical school doctrine continued to call for fighter escorts of bombers. But the Depression era austere fiscal environment and a preference for strategic employment of air power led many Air Corps leaders, including Henry Hap Arnold, to increasingly ignore tactical aviation. A type of bomber tunnel vision spread throughout the tactical school, and what was taught at the school quickly propagated through the Air Corps because eighty percent of air corps leadership during world war II were graduates of the school including its top three generals it was not that the tactical school rejected the notion of air superiority but that the classic interpretation of it achieved through the epic world war I aerial battle had ceased to be of interest to it the air corps unrelenting emphasis on strategic air power led it to believe that air superiority would be achieved through the destruction of enemy air force infrastructure and vital facilities behind enemy lines. The bombers flying in protective box formations would get through using their onboard defenses and mutual covering fire. Despite some airmen's dire warnings, Claire Chennault being most prominent among them, that unprotected bombers would find the going tough over contested airspace, the myth of unescorted daylight bombing continued and indeed intensi- intensified this even after Chennault had shown that he was able to routinely intercept and harass bombers on training missions. The Air Corps took no heed because, if the web theory proved accurate, overwhelming and precise attacks would cause the rapid surrender of the enemy before the absence of fighter escorts proved critical. As Mitchell had preached a decade earlier, the only defense against aircraft is by hitting the enemy first, the school now put into doctrine. Thus, by the mid-1930s, the Air Corps Tactical School rallied behind the coherent air power proposition that the goal of attack from the air was to defeat the enemy's morale and will to resist, that the best way to undermine morale was by attacking the enemy's centers of gravity, which almost invariably meant key targets within cities, as these attacks would coerce populations into rapid submission, but also in the process save lives vis-à-vis conventional ground warfare. That air power was inherently offensive and unstoppable. This was, of course, the idea that the bomber would always get through. That air power was inherently strategic and best applied to strategic targets, which held far more weight than tactical targets. And finally, that strategic attacks must be prosecuted until the desired effect is achieved and not stopped or redirected towards other objectives. These ideas were made manifest in the crowning pre-World War II Air Corps achievement, the Air War Plans Division I document, or AWPD-1. Ostensibly, AWPD-1 was to be a plan for the overall production of an air armada necessary to defeat America's potential enemies. But in the time-honored tradition of crusading airmen before them, the men tasked to create the document far exceeded its mandate and delivered a comprehensive war plan for the defeat of the Axis powers. Under Hap Arnold's direction, AWPD-1 became the conceptualization of strategic air warfare in Europe. Created by a like-minded group of former and present tactical school officers, the plan and its assumptions continued the explicit rejection of civilian bombing and focused on identifying weak points in Germany. Taking the offensive both literally and figuratively, the plan articulated a doctrine of strategic bombing utilizing large, well-armed four-engine bombers flying in mutually supporting formations while penetrating in daylight deep into enemy territory. Targeting would be carefully conducted to ensure keystone industries on which the enemy's whole economic infrastructure depended would be struck and destroyed. The plan envisioned a six-month campaign culminating in the total collapse and defeat of Germany. AWPD-1 made allowance for hemispheric defense only grudgingly, if necessary, as it stated, focusing instead almost entirely on the offensive. How was this to be done, and what does this show about the strategic thinking at the eve of the war? AWPD-1 objectives were the destruction of German infrastructure and morale. The electric power grid, which had figured so prominently in earlier school planning, was placed high on the target list. Destruction of the grid would have a direct impact on the production of German aircraft, aluminum, synthetic rubber, and armaments, but would also affect textile production, automobile production, urban transportation, and the cold storage of food. Implicit in the language and general current of the plan was the assumption that air power was the deciding factor in war, that the airplane was the primary weapon of conflict, and that precise high-altitude bombing of enemy industry could deliver a knockout blow from the air. AWPD-1 contained a number of other explicit objectives. These were the elimination of the Luftwaffe through the destruction of air bases, factories, and metals production, notably not through air combat, and the support of friendly forces through offensive actions against German submarine, surface ship, and invasion ports. While the Army General Staff did not endorse the implicit ideas flowing from this document that air power could win a war, it did recognize that the individual explicit objectives were necessary for the land forces to achieve ultimate victory. By the summer of 1942, President Roosevelt called for an expansion and redirection of AWPD, bringing about its revision and renaming to AWPD 42. The new plan featured an increased emphasis on direct military targets such as the Luftwaffe, the submarine pens, and transportation infrastructure, and relegated the electrical grid for so long the favored tactical school target to fourth place on the priority list. Even so, the new plan's target list came under rigorous review by the Committee of Operations Analysts, which pushed electricity to thirteenth place on the target list, too far down to be of primary interest to targeters. Why had electricity, the machine of Air Corps Tactical School theory, fallen out of favor? Two reasons are commonly cited. One, the German electrical grid was considered too dissimilar from the US example, which had served as the foundation of targeting assumptions. There was enough redundancy within it to prevent the achievement of the bombing effects desired. Second, the shift of emphasis towards invasion preparations increased the necessity of direct attack against German forces as a preparatory tactic for the Allied landings in Normandy. The COA also studied the Japanese economy to identify relevant strategic targets. Here again, the Japanese electrical grid was considered unsuitable for attack as it was widely dispersed, not very interconnected, and as a result less susceptible to the collapse By way of precision strikes. Ultimately, the problem with the overemphasis on targeting electricity may have been one of American centrism. The United States, as an industrial consumption-based economy, relied on electricity not only for national heavy production, but for the comforts of home of its vast consumer culture. That Germany and Japan were not nearly as electricity hungry, particularly in the consumer market, Changed the morale calculus of electricity bombing and highlighted the dangers of mirror-imaging your enemies. Electricity proved no panacea, nor did the other organic infrastructure and manufacturing targets proposed by later tactical school instructors Robert Webster and Muir Fairchild, the transportation networks, the fuel refineries, food stocks and steel manufacturing industries. Following the war, It became evident that Air Corps Tactical School Interwar Doctrine, while forward-thinking and effective in many ways, was also presupposed on some fundamental flaws. It placed too heavy an emphasis on metaphor in place of logical argumentation. The House of Cards metaphor, for instance, relating to the enemy economy, was based on a sample size of one, the American economy of the 1930s. Unlike a House of Cards, the German economy contained within itself considerable unused surplus potential and regenerative power. The AWPD planners had perceived it as an inflexible, unchanging industrial mesh, incapable of repairing itself or its damaged choke points. The plan implicitly assumed that the German economy was operating at maximum capacity, so that attacks against it would produce immediate and visible downturns in production. In fact, German output continued to rise through 1944 as the slack in the economy was picked up to compensate for damage. In other words, the airmen who devised the AWPD plans suffered from an over-reliance on quantification that has plagued many an air campaign. Consistent with their scientific approach, they provided extraordinarily precise calculations about the numbers of bombers, crews and bombs required. AWPD-1, for example, called for 6,860 bombers, attacking 154 target sets over six months to achieve victory. Such precision of prediction appeared to herald a new scientific way of warfare, fit for the aircraft as a new weapon of war, but at the very least confused tactical effectiveness for strategic effectiveness and endowed technology with the power to challenge Clausewitzian assumptions on the unpredictability of war. Clausewitz had proclaimed war as the realm of uncertainty, but airmen attempted to consign such axioms to the dustbin of history. The air war over Europe, however, showed that it was anything as simple as adding bomb yields to mission totals to achieve a formula for victory. Neither the Air Corps Tactical School nor AWPD 1 anticipated repeat missions to keep already bombed targets from being rebuilt. And yet, such a scenario played out again and again during the war. For example, the attack against the Regensburg East marshalling yard in December 1944 achieved the desired accuracy and destroyed its target, but repair crews returned the yard to service within four days. The Air Corps Tactical School also failed to recognize that the air power maxims it had put forth were not universal that is to say, applicable to all wars and all periods. The type of specific air power theory as outlined above was well suited to the conduct of war against the one nation the instructors had perfect access to, the United States of the interwar period. Over the still and clear Southern California skies where many bombing tests were conducted, notions of pickle barrel accuracy seem plausible. But over the hazy, cloudy, smoke and flack-filled fighter-defended skies of Europe, such claims would be turned upside down on their head. Once in theater, the 8th Air Force found that European meteorological conditions prevented optimal sighting visual conditions at full 80% of the time. And successful completion of bombing missions was almost entirely up to luck, and a lot of it at that. The average survival rate for an 8th Air Force bomber crew in 1943 was 14 missions. The 4% attrition rate meant it was statistically unlikely for a crew to complete its 25 mission combat tour. The RAF flying at night fared no better. Lancaster crews faced a 50% chance of being killed in combat during their tour, that grim statistic growing yet higher to 60% factoring in non-combat flying and training accidents. This was trench warfare made manifest in the skies. Before we get to critical, it must be remembered that AWPD-1 was created by six staff officers working with rudimentary adding machines in the oppressive heat and humidity of Alabama, largely without intelligence information and basing their calculations on practice bombings flown in clear weather and at low altitudes. They received sporadic assistance from experts such as Wall Street financiers Richard Hughes and Malcolm Moss, but the truth was that the instructors primarily developed their theory based on reason and logical thinking, their fundamental knowledge of military matters, and an intuitive understanding of the reaction of human beings to the stress of aerial attack. Deductive reasoning and metaphors featured prominently in their theory, but as it turned out, The idea that destruction of a key target set was equivalent to the cutting of a combatant's artery, for example, leading to rapid blood loss and death, simply did not translate to the national scale in the way airmen expected. But the technology was progressing rapidly, and while it is true that accuracy lagged behind doctrine, it was not outside the realm of possibility that improvements in technology could make the doctrine correct. Historian Tammy Davis Biddle has argued that AWPD-1 placed too much faith on the offensive and not enough on the defensive. But mainland America was never threatened, and American operations throughout the war were of necessity coercive and offensive. The Trenchardian vision of two great nations trading offensive air power blows until one conceded defeat was, by fact of geography, never a real possibility, given the technology of the time. The Duhaytian influence on the Air Corps Tactical School is undeniable but pinpointing the exact origins of tactical school theory is difficult. Many school instructors denied knowing of Duhay's writings. This seems implausible as we know that Duhay's command of the air was available at the school from 1923 onwards and directly applied to school texts from 1926. The records as to the school's ultimate influence, however, are frustratingly inexplicit and incomplete in reference to materials used for essays, lectures, and manuals. The instructors' primary concerns were far removed from contemporary research standards of documentation of sources. Mitchell and tactical school instructors were, after all, airmen first and theorists second and their writings reflected not only pragmatic requirements but the need to devise theory that will give them an autonomous role for their air force. They were practitioners and crusaders for air power, and not necessarily in that order. We can infer that Mitchell's service with Trenchard during World War I influenced his ideas directly, while Duhay and others provided an indirect influence, although it is also just as likely that Mitchell regarded Duhay as only another argument for his point of view. No matter the interpretation, Mitchell's adaptation of these European ideas to American geographic realities, political attitudes, and strategy is what made his theories unique. The Air Corps Tactical School was heavily influenced by Mitchell's early thoughts, and so at least in this small way owes its heritage by way of him to the great European theorists. Beyond that, we may have to accept that some questions on the origins of Air Corps Tactical School theory will always remain unanswerable. Through the 1920s, the school never fully accepted or acknowledged the ideas of Duhay, and by the 1930s had developed a vision of strategic bombing sufficiently unique enough to be its own. With its precision bombing against economic bottlenecks, it explicitly rejected Duhaytian notions of terror bombing, while at the same time challenging Duhay's gross exaggerations of explosive yields by calling for far larger bomber formations than he ever had although, as we have seen, still far short of what was required once combat had been joined. Lastly, it must be noted that the school's well-developed theory was in many instances just that, a theory. Throughout the 1930s and indeed to the eve of the war, Air Corps aircraft and tactics were incapable of practically executing the ideas that underpinned its existence. In 1934, the disastrous airmail flying program, which resulted in many airplanes becoming lost and crashing, revealed the extent of training and equipment deficiencies present within the Corps. The depression significantly impacted Air Corps procurement and training policies, and the five-year modernization and growth program of the 1926 Air Corps Act was never fully implemented. At one point in 1934, during the struggle for funding, it appeared the Air Corps would take delivery of only 17 of the 370 airplanes it had ordered. Subsequent lobbying made good the deficit, but the incident illustrated the dire funding situation the Air Corps was in. Although the B-17 remained the embodiment of the school's ideals, The much less capable Martin B-10, the most numerical bomber of the 1930s, represented the reality until just before the war. No matter its flaws, the Air Corps Tactical School contributed significantly to the deeper appreciation and understanding of air power. That President Roosevelt in 1940, in a Congressional speech, talked of bombing the Axis powers heavily and relentlessly was a testament to the far-ranging effects of the airmen's advocacy and when Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau advised Roosevelt that for your international speeches to be effective, you must be backed up with the best air fleet in the world. He was acknowledging the coercive and strategic potential of air power. Air power had by then developed a psychological hold, not only on its potential victims, but its proponents too. In the run-up to World War II, conceptions of air power, and the example of the Spanish Civil War, the bombing of Guernica foremost among them, weighed heavily on decision-makers. British Prime Minister Chamberlain, who had been the mayor of Birmingham in 1916 and witnessed the Zeppelin bombing raids in person, came to believe, based on conversation with his chiefs of staff, that German bombers could devastate British cities at will, and that there was little the RAF could do to prevent it. Controversy continues to swirl around the strategic bombing campaign of World War II. The campaign indisputably had an effect on German war production and fighting capability. The almost total collapse of German infrastructure in the spring of 1945 led Albert Speer to report to Hitler that German economy is heading for an inevitable collapse within four to eight weeks. Although the Allies were still some distance away, Train loads had been reduced through bombing to 15% of their capacity and were rapidly diminishing towards zero. The 8th Air Force alone destroyed almost 19,000 enemy aircraft and contributed to 1.5 million tons of bombs being dropped by all bomber aircraft over Germany, of which 500,000 tons were dropped by B-17s but much yet had to be learned about the correct application of strategic bombardment. At the time of AWPD-1's development, the Air Corps had no practical experience in bombing, and the Norden site had never been used in anger. In many ways, the American bombing campaign against Germany was experimental and blundered into areas of unnecessary or ineffective employment post-war studies of targeting showed that the inordinate focus on destruction of ball-bearing factories, for example, had likely been unnecessary, while electricity generation, which had fallen off the top of the targeted list, would have produced a greater impact on the German war effort than its rank as a non-priority target indicated. The reality was that even if the equipment, the B-17, the Norden, had worked as advertised, the American-British efforts lacked the sort of refined targeting intelligence and flexibility necessary for the effective prosecution of an ongoing and dynamic air campaign. They were guessing as to which target sets to attack, and moreover lacked intelligence on the effects of their bombing. Not until the post-war bombing surveys peeled back the fog of war did the extent of their errors and successes become known what was indisputable based on post-war observations of Germany and Japan was that no nation could long survive as a cohesive unit the free exploitation of air weapons over its homeland in that the air power advocates going back to HG Wells had been prophetic if a common thread between the theorists can be drawn it is that they were all repulsed by the horrors of trench warfare and believed that bombing was the humane solution for a rapid cheap and relatively effortless conclusion to war in this they were mistaken within this new age of warfare entire cities with hundreds of thousands of civilian casualties were wiped off the battle order as fast as the battalions and brigades of the old wars the industrial and ideological strength of a nation permitted it to absorb losses that exceeded even those of fielded armies and so the war carried on American Interwar hopes of killing machines not people proved impossible to sustain in such an environment and soon degenerated into trenchardian city bombing campaigns. The Norden bomb site didn't work in clouds and fog, and keeping the bomber steady under attack required uncommon nerves. As a result, most bombs went wide, by a far margin. The combined bomber offensive pounded Germany around the clock, the British at night. With little regard for precision the americans during the day so that their nordens would have a fighting chance of spotting a target but more often than not missing it entirely the results were almost indistinguishable however both the raf and the air force practiced in effect city bombing operation thunderclap against berlin showed that world war ii pragmatism had won out against the noble concepts of the tactical school's interwar profits of precision By 1945, full-blown incendiary bombing of Japanese cities, including Tokyo, killed hundreds of thousands of civilians and culminated with the atomic attacks against Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There was clearly a disconnect between policy and reality that has coincidentally remained unresolved in American air power to the present day. To sum up, Mitchell, and the Air Corps Tactical School worked diligently and passionately to bring their vision to fruition. Mitchell's unrelenting agitation for an effective Air Force enamored the American public with the airplane and made it see the potential of air power. Global aviation technology moved at a rapid pace and in those early years not always with America at the lead. Despite the inhospitable political and economic environment Mitchell kept the airplane at the forefront of public attention so that by the early 1930s he and the instructors of the Air Corps Tactical School had at last convinced the nation of the need to fund an effective Air Force. This advocacy bared fruit in ever-increasing responsibilities for the Air Corps and growing budget appropriations too, so that five years before the outbreak of war the Air Corps possessed a cohesive air power doctrine based on attacks against enemy vital centers, operated under a fair degree of autonomy through its general headquarters and possessed the correct equipment in the shape of the B-17 bomber and Norden bombsight to carry out its missions. That war showed many of these ideas to be wrong does not take away from the noble efforts of the airmen to implement a truly American and more humane means of waging war. When compared to the air service of just two decades earlier, this was monumental progress. That the airmen allowed their theory of bombardment to become the functional servant of their drive for independence, thereby eroding any pretense to moralistic principles, is much harder to explain and rationalize, particularly as it applied to their brutal campaign against Japan. But that is a topic for another podcast.